Letter from Helvetica is brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com and shop.saturdaymorningpress.co.uk. Letter from Helvetica by Andrew McIntosh Starring Andrew McIntosh as John Stotter and Natalie Rolls as Abigail Wesley Chapter 5 Ride a White Swan Shall we then? I asked, proffering my arm Absolutely, old girl, he replied and we wandered down the deck as the rib was lowered into an ocean that was now so calm and clear you could actually see fish darting around under the surface. The rib, rigid, inflatable boat, as Caleb helpfully informed me, easily accommodated all five Wesleys, sat astride a column of seats that ran like a spine down the centre of the craft. Up front, in the comfy seat, sat Stephen and Walter, the rib's pilot, a young and sinewy Nivanuatu of no more than 20 years, who was able to swing and leap from rib to ship and back again with the agility of a spider monkey. He handed lightweight life vests to us and we donned them dutifully, even though we are all, even Spot, fine swimmers. He and Stephen wore none, I noted. Walter lowered the enormous Suzuki outboard into the water and as he walked forward said to us, You want to get there slow like driftwood or fast like flying fish? What do you want, kids? asked Richard, followed by a chorus of fast, fast. Oh no, Stephen, said Walter, turning to his colleague. We got to do a fast run again. We hate them, don't we? Turning to us and grinning, he pointed out a lanyard strapped to his wrist, attached to which was a key, and asked the children, Any of you know what this is? We would never have contemplated this trip if our precious offspring were not at one with the water and did not have at least a smattering of nautical nous. And it pleased me no end when Caleb responded, is that the kill called? Those eye-wateringly expensive trips away with the school on sailing weeks are finally paying off. Yeah, man. So if I get thrown off the boat, the engine gonna stop and you won't be going anywhere without me. And with that somewhat eccentric and brief safety, uh, briefing, he placed the key into the ignition, pressed the starter button, and the outboard roared into life. Stephen pushed us away from glorious sides, and we were, in an instant, hurtling and bucking across the water, hanging on to our seat straps for dear life as though saddled upon maniacal stallions. As we raced headlong towards the shore, we could see that the beach gave the impression of being split in two, allowing water to ingress to form a lagoon. Not strictly a lagoon, you understand, Uncle John, because there was no land to separate the inlet from the greater sea. I know you like these details to be just right, but a reef just below the surface of the water allowed it to be at least a wallflower at the lagoon party if not an active participant, if you see what I mean. And there, on the right-hand shore, was the most glorious wood-built house, the front of which was mounted on short stilts buried deep into the sands. 
The rear of the house, or its arse, as I think you'll find is the architectural term, sat comfortably on the sharply rising beach. On the upper storey at the front of the house, I clocked an enormous balcony giving an unfettered view out towards the ocean. The rib, its engines now cut, glided gracefully towards the shore and beached perfectly on the sand. Walter and Stephen leapt into the shallows and held out their arms to assist us. All right for them because they had shorts and bare feet, but we were all still in our travelling clothes. Stephen, realising our predicament, said, We can carry each of you if you want, all except for the big fella there. He grinned at Richard. No, I said, might as well start as we mean to go on. And with that, I stripped off my shoes and socks and rolled my trousers up, the children and Richard quickly following suit, and splashed into the water that felt as warm as a consomme left to grow cold, or a vicious soir left out in the sun, or a... Ooh, you get the picture. The water was tepid. The kids raced ahead up the beach. I said to Stephen, it's fantastic. What is the house called again? House Blanc Olfala, he replied. So what is that? Is it a name? I asked. He chortled. No, it's Bislama, our national language. House Blanc Olfala means is the house belonging to the old man. What old man? I began picturing in mind some grizzled tribal chief until the penny dropped and I realised they were talking about Douglas, as in this is Douglas's house. I couldn't help but let loose a guffaw. Cheeky buggers, I thought, but then I didn't know at that point that there is much about Bislama that does not necessarily meet the eye. As we approached the house, approaching us in return were a man and woman. He dressed in loose trousers and a shirt. She in a floral dress, both barefoot. But of them I must leave for another time. I have rambled on and on in this missive, and I am sure you must be snoozing deeply by now. There is so much more to tell. But now I need news of rain and still grey skies and the further adventures of your naked sylph. Two things before I go from your last communication. How do you Sherman yourself to sleep, please? Was is Sherman? And I didn't know you were ever in Aden. More information, if you please. The children send lots of love to you. I promise I will get them to write something to you in the next email. Have no idea where they are at the moment, which you actually don't have to worry about here, it would seem. How wonderful. Love, Abby. Kiss, kiss. John.Starter at penstrothergrange.co.uk Helvetica, Sunday, May 3rd. 
Well, my dear old thing, you are, as always, wise beyond your years, and your advice concerning Zlata's wardrobe choice, or lack thereof, is spot on. Strangely enough, while it's only a short time since we last communicated, I've now become so accustomed to Zlata in her skin that, A, I now find it mildly surprising when I see her wearing anything at all, and B, I have no idea why I was getting my knickers in such a twist. At least I'm still sporting some. She has more recently embarked on a campaign to get me to join her in shedding both my garments and my inhibitions. I've told her that inhibition doesn't come into it. The weather has to make a rather better fist of it than it's doing at the moment before I will so much as contemplate eschewing the thermals. Penstrother Grange remaining something of a stranger to insulation. Zlata seems to have an extraordinary internal thermostat thing going on. You seem concerned that I should find your last missive overlong or too detailed, but au contraire, I find it all thrilling and am most envious of this your oceanic grand tour. Only hope I can compete in some small way by proffering news of the comparatively prosaic goings-on in Helvetica. My apologies for not having the opportunity to write sooner, but Beltane has kept us all rather more occupied than one might have wished. When it was first suggested to me long ago that I should put myself forward for election to the parish council, I must confess that I was flattered. Visions of my becoming a giant of local politics beguiled me, and I pictured myself as a sort of parochial Cicero. Parochio, if you will. Needless to say, my lofty ideals were quickly dragged down by the mind-numbing, petty-fogging minutiae of village administration. It has, over the years, actually made me question the fundamental tenets of democracy, such as the virtual impossibility of ever getting anything achieved by a committee. Much better to have a benign dictator, I say. Someone like me, for e.g. However, I keep on doing it because if I don't, some even madder, badder bastard might take my place. And then what, I ask you? Anyway... The whole parish council thing means an inevitable involvement with the preparations for Beltane. I can't recall you ever having visited Penstrother Grange during this accursed festival, so I should explain that the Helvetica interpretation is a completely bastardised version of an ancient pagan ritual, celebrating the bounty of spring and encouraging blessings upon the fertility of one's crops, livestock, wife's uterus, husband's testes, and so forth. It's basically May Day with a quasi-Celtic stroke Cornish slant, so not only do you get Fae dancing around the bloody maypole, but you have a sodding great bonfire and fireworks to boot. All that's missing from this toxic broth is Santa Claus. Needless to say, and with the inevitability of death and taxes, Lady Euphemia of Kellywig has already managed to get herself involved. The members of the Beltane Committee, along with my esteemed colleagues on the Parish Council, 
were falling over each other in an effort to clamber up her bottom the moment she announced that she and her husband were prepared to fund an annual prize for the best May bow, this being a tangled morass of hawthorn and any other twiggy growth vaguely in flower at this time of year, decorated with ribbons and what not, which one is supposed to hang above one's door. This tradition had thankfully been dying out in Helvetica more recently, but Euphemia, being the revivalist she is, realised that the twin incentives of a crystal vase from BHS and a £50 voucher from WHS would quickly buck up these village slackers. And she was right. For the past week the villagers looked as though Wurzel Gummidge has banged his head on every door arch. Amazing how a few quid can quickly buy your way into the fantasy that is village life. Mrs. Taplow of Number 7 Shore Street is now the proud holder of the inaugural trophy, although whether or not she has to return the tacky old flower container for redistribution to next year's triumphant winner remains to be decided. I have to say that despite Euphemia's oft-reported wealth reported by herself, I might add. I thought the crystal vase must have come from some bin-end, so ham-fisted was the craftsmanship in the glasswork. Imagine my surprise, therefore, when I looked it up on the interweb and found that it cost nearly 200 quid. Gabriel recently announced that he had agreed to take on some gardening work at Bloody Kellywig, at first I felt a certain sense of betrayal, although I quickly realised that he could become a most useful source of inside information. Cunning old fox that I am. After his second visit, Gabriel described her as a pissed old tart and him as a dickless wanker. The latter is nothing if not a puzzling metaphor, but his fruity language had managed to reaffirm my fondness for Gabriel, and swept away any sensation of infidelity like the evanescence of an early morning Cornish mist. Turns out that their collective surname is Derrick, D-E-R-R-I-C-K. No problem with that, you might think, until you hear that Mr. Derrick's cruel and witless parents chose the Christian name for him of, wait for it, Derrick. I had to ask Gabriel to repeat it three times, which of course made six, until the delicious stupidity of his name had truly sunk in. Derrick, Derrick. Oh joy, oh rapture. Even more so when you consider that the name Faye Derrick sounds like a homosexual North Sea oil rig. Oh, and thrice oh. Gabriel reports that they've made their fortune in fibre optics, whatever that is. I've tasked him to bring me further intimate details of Shay Kellywig with all speed, an enterprise which he has agreed to undertake with his customary stoned equanimity. Anyway, on the actual day of Beltane, after the afternoon's entertainment, and after the presentation of the trophy to Mrs. Taplow, which of course involved much ticker-tape, a rousing performance by the scantily-clad Helvetica cheerleading majorettes, and a victorious lap of honour round the village by the septuagenarian Mrs. T, 
we all dispersed excitedly to prepare ourselves for the main nighttime festivities of bonfire, fireworks, and much drinking of mead. Okay, I made all that up. We all pissed off home for a while to have a cup of tea or something more fortifying and brace ourselves for the awfulness that the night would inevitably bring. As I flopped into my armchair, hoping fervently that I could just curl up in front of the telly for the rest of the evening with the dogs keeping my feet warm, Zlata breezed in and announced how wonderful it all was and how very, very English. It's all made up or stolen from other cultures, I shouted to her as she disappeared into the kitchen to put the kettle on. It's no more English than you. Well, she called back, I think it was very beautiful, and all the little children dancing round the pole were so cute. I have many photographs to put on Facebook so they can see them back home. God, don't do that, I said. Not unless you tell them explicitly that it is not a representation of English culture. Then again, everything changes so quickly that maybe it is. Zlatter reappeared at the kitchen door, smiled at me and said, You sound like old man. You like tea in a china cup, old man, or in a mug? Oh, mug, let's push the boat out. Although Zlata has become increasingly familiar with me and with it increasingly cheeky, she's an absolute godsend and it would be hard, nay, downright unfair, ever to feel impatient with her. And she is, it turns out, a genius in the kitchen, not remotely phased if she's called upon to cook for one or for several. Last time I wrote to you, I was in a mild state of trepidation as we prepared to sit down to a taste of Croatian cuisine. I had visions of cabbage and potatoes pretty much for every course, including pudding. Silly of me, I suppose, but I hadn't realised how Mediterranean it was bound to be, what with her having grown up within spitting distance of Italy and all. Turns out Istria is a bit of a culinary jewel, and at the risk of boring you, it's worth detailing exactly what it was she prepared that night. We started off with what one might consider a standard antipasto platter, with prosciutto, fresh basil leaves, sliced mozzarella and goat's cheese, sun-dried tomatoes and porcini mushrooms, drizzled with olive oil and served with bruschetta rubbed with garlic. The crowning glory, though, was some truffle paste that Slater has brought with her from home. She tells me that truffles are relatively abundant in Istria, an area that aspires to become the leading area of global truffle supply. Today, truffles, tomorrow, the world! Croatians call them tartuffe, which I find amusant, given that the Molière book Tartuffe is subtitled The Impostor. I, for one, am never quite sure whether truffles are indeed manna from heaven and worthy of being more valuable than gold, or whether in fact they not only look like poo but also taste like it. Do we all gasp with culinary admiration as we taste these strange little tubers because we actually like them, or because we think we ought to, and that it demonstrates how sophisticated we are? Oh well, far be it from me to take the fun out of fun guy. None of this philosophizing is to undermine the starter, by the way, which was, in all respects, superb. 
Next came a most extraordinary soup course, or super, get me in my multilingualness, which comprised a bowl of warm red wine with nothing further added than some seasoning, a drizzle of olive oil, and, bizarrely, floating on top, another slice of the bread used for the bruschetta, this one being deliberately burnt. The description is none too appetizing, I know, nor indeed was the sight of it when it was placed in front of me. But the flavour was altogether unexpected and strangely wonderful. The carbon from the toast actually brought out the flavour of the wine, and I became instilled with a sensation of warmth and well-being as I glugged it down. As palate cleansers go, it was completely useless, given that the flavours remained with me for several days thereafter. But it was a most effective digestif, and actually sharpened my appetite for what was to come. You have been listening to Letter from Helvetica by Andrew McIntosh. Starring Andrew McIntosh as John and Natalie Rolls as Abby. Brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com and shop.saturdaymorningpress.co.uk. The series is produced by Oliver Crocker. Co-produced by Rob Cook, Tessa Crocker, Michelle DeSuta, Bryony Kelly, Tracy King, Paul Morris, Triona Palmer, Laura Pinifay, Lee Pointer, Valerie Rolls, Yulia Thurlow and Andrew Ruff. And executive produced by Andrew Dyack, George Fairbrother, Edward Kellett, Sophie Pycroft, Amanda Rotherham, Case Goble and Michael Seeley. Next time, all together now. If you'd like to binge Series 1 of Letter from Helvetica, you can unlock all eight episodes and behind-the-scenes content on patreon.com forward slash letterfromhelvetica. To support our development of Series 2, we are accepting donations via coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com forward slash letterfromhelvetica. Music